I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to the book of Genesis chapter number three, as was read just a moment ago, Genesis three. The first rule of public speaking is to never speak on a subject that is sensitive, that is offensive, or that is unpleasant. In fact, it's public speaking suicide to address a matter that your audience doesn't want to hear. And so with that in mind this morning, the subject of our study is the subject of sin. Specifically, the danger and the damage of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. They disobeyed their creator's command and ate of the tree in the midst of the garden. The consequences of their sin was death. And it wasn't only death for Adam and Eve, but for the entire Hebrew human race. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And today we are born as sinners, we then behave as sinners, and because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious, righteous, holy character, the wages of our sin is death, Romans three twenty-three and, and Romans 6, verse 23. And that may not sound like a popular message, but it's a necessary a message. That may be an offensive message to you, but folks, if we don't know our sin, we will never know our need for a savior. And in fact, Romans 5 verse number 18 explains as by the offense of one, that's Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of of life. This morning we are going to read, as we have already, again this morning we will read of the Bible record of when sin first entered the world. However, I don't want us to simply rail against Adam and Eve for plunging the human race into sin. I I don't want to simply teach about original sin and the different views of it, like Pelagianism or Arminianism or Calvinism. I, I don't want to simply argue federal or seminal natural headship of Adam in these things. Those are important areas of Bible doctrine regarding sin. But rather this morning, I want to simply make six observations regarding sin from the lives of Adam and Eve that will help us today, help us live lives that are victorious over sin today. Because at the end of the day, sin is present in us, Paul said, Romans chapter seven, verse number 17. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over sin, over death, through, the, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I want this to, to be practical and helpful to us as each and every one of us battle sin. I've titled my message, The Danger and the Damage of Sin. Let's begin with prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for the scripture, the holy scripture, your revelation to us that, that teaches us even the hard things. Lord, the subject of sin is uncomfortable, it's annoying, it's offensive, but God, we know that it's necessary for us to recognize our depravity and therefore the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our need of it. I pray that you, your spirit would be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 3, verse number one. Now the serpent 
was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the, to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, Revelation 12, verse 9, Revelation 20, verse 2 tells us that the serpent of old, the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 1, was the devil and Satan. And so Satan, embodied here in, in a snake, in a serpent, speaks to Eve and he questions what God has said. Ever since the beginning, Satan has put a question mark where God has put a period. And I submit to you, number one, that sin darkens our intellect with the questions of Satan. It confuses the truth. Sin darkens our intellect. It confuses the, the truth where Satan here now, the author and the originator of sin, questions what God has said. And Satan questions for so long and so loudly that even believers can doubt what is truly right and wrong or black and white because Satan's questions don't shed light on a matter. They darken our intellect. They confuse the truth. In fact, sin so confuses the truth that even in a perfect place, like the paradise of the Garden of Eden, when sin is present, it can be difficult to think clearly. For example, let's take a Bible-believing church like our own or Christian homes like our own or a school or a seminary like our own, a place where, a faith community where there is commitment to God and his word, the truth even in this place can become confused when Satan introduces doubt and asks questions against what God has said. So there may be questions and confusion regarding the teaching of God's word. Paul told Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but will turn aside their ears away from the truth, 2 Timothy 4. There may be confusion regarding the moral absolutes of God's word. We know that fallen man is prone to exchange the truth of God for a lie, Romans chapter one. There may be question or confusion regarding the good news of God's word, the gospel, Galatians 1. Some pervert the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And, And here back at the beginning in Genesis 3 for Eve, the truth was confused because Satan introduced a question. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And, and perhaps in this moment, Eve hesitated. Perhaps you have often hesitated, truly confused as to the truth. What does the Bible say? What is the truth or the right thing to do about a matter? I, I feel like I'm hearing two different things. It's, it's not a black and white issue. It's a, maybe a gray area and it, there's a blur. And Satan questions in this case is, is the original gaslighting as it were where Satan's questions introduce doubt, uh, confusing the truth, and it darkens the intellect of Eve. But Eve's reaction was a good one. And she repeated God's instructions. Look at verses two and three. And the woman said to the serpent, here's the answer. We may eat of the fruit in the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And folks, I believe that we should applaud Eve at this point now in verses two and three for she's rehearsing the truth. She's speaking the truth back to the questions of Satan and the doubts of her own mind and heart. And and there is power in that. In fact, David declared, your word have I hid in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. And David knew that if he memorized the truth, God's word, his instructions, when Satan introduced doubt and question, David could remind himself of what God had said. In fact, that's the very same weapon that Jesus used in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. Jesus didn't reason with Satan, but rather Jesus answered, it is written, thus says the Lord. And for Eve, she rehearsed what God had said and Satan then had to attack in a different way. Verse number four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I would offer you this, sin dulls our fears and it combats our conscience. It dulls our fear and it combats our conscience. Satan said that's not true. Don't worry about death. Don't fear death. But fear is a good thing for it gives us pause. We tell our children, don't touch the stove because you may get burned. Don't run in the street, you'll get hit by a car. Don't drink and drive, you'll have an accident. Don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, you will die. But I can imagine Satan talking to Eve in, in the vernacular saying, that's, that's so not true. Your parents are just overprotective. They never let you do anything. You're old enough to handle it. Everyone else is doing it. They're just trying to scare you or control you. But the problem is, in the presence of sin, there is combat against our consciences. We, We call it a seared conscience. We call it quenching the Holy Spirit. And the healthy pain and fear of our conscience becomes dulled so that we're no longer afraid of sin or its consequence. So how is it that we can know, we can know that God is omnipresent, omniscient, always with us and watching over us, but yet we still obey his commands? How is it that we can know that we will stand before God someday and give an account of the things that we have done, and yet we have no fear of him? We have lost the fear of God when confronted with sin. And it dulls our fears. It combats our consciences. In the Old Testament, the fear of God kept men trembling outside the tabernacle, waiting to see if God would accept their sacrifice. And now we don't, we don't fear the consequences of sin because we, we don't fear God. In fact, I should, I should create a slogan, no fear. But that's already been created and marketed. It's too late for that one. The Bible says in Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the degree that you hate evil and wickedness and sin is the degree that you fear the Lord, but yet we're dulled to sin and the consequences of sin. If you have a sensitive conscience, praise the Lord for that and never suppress that. Look at verse number six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. All right, let's think about this for a moment. How many times do you think Adam and Eve walked through the Garden of Eden and looked at that tree before they ate its fruit? Remember, the tree is not in the the perimeter or the fringes, the outskirts of the garden. It's in the middle of the garden. It's at the intersection or the crossroads of any, every time they would traverse that garden. Maybe once, twice, three times, multiple times a day. It's there, they can't miss it. But all of a sudden now, Eve looks at that tree this time and it somehow looks different to her. 
It's irresistible to her. It's so tempting to her. You see, sin distorts our vision and it creates lust. Sin distorts our vision and it creates lust. lust. And, And Satan knows how to use our eye gate to cause lust in our hearts and make us fall. It was in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, whoever looks as on a woman to lust after her commits adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, he said in verse 29, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Sin so distorts our vision that we should be willing to gouge out our eyes. I'm not suggesting that we, we put the TV in the closet or out for the trash. That's, that's too radical. I'm not suggesting that we cancel the subscription. That's too drastic. I'm not telling you to turn your head when you see sinful opportunity before you. I'm repeating the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, verse 29. Gouge out your eyes to protect and guard you from sin. The lust of your heart that compels you to sin. Of course, we think of David who was walking on his housetop looking over the city. He saw a woman bathing. Instead of turning his head, he lusted in his heart. He sent for the woman. He committed adultery. In this case, it's for for Eve. Satan drew her close to the tree, showed her the tree so that she could see, and he summons us in the same way. Hey, come a little closer. Take a look. It's not a sin to take a look. Take a look. Come on, don't be such a prude. Enjoy the good things of life. And Satan knows that sin distorts our vision, creates lust in our hearts, and causes us to fall. For that reason, Job said, I will make a covenant with my eyes. David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And and folks, I would simply ask us, what does Satan want us to see this morning? Verse number six again, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. What's happening here? Number four, sin damages our will. It damages our will. It coerces our decisions. It coerces our decisions. Now, I have never struggled with an addiction like smoking or gambling or alcohol or other drugs. I've never been to a rehab center. I've never had to face the intense cravings of of the human body. Those, Those battles are real. However, folks, I am a sinner and I know how hard it is to say no to sin in the heat of the moment. Although the spirit is willing, the flesh is is weak. So often in in pastoral counseling, I I hear the desperate confession of, of one who says, Pastor, I don't want to be like that. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't intend to do that. I just couldn't help myself. It just came out. It just happened. It wasn't until afterward that I realized what I had done, and now I regret it. But at the time, in the moment, there was nothing I could do to stop myself. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt powerless, impotent in the flesh to have victory over over sin. And that is, that is genuine despair. I, I can't conquer the habit. I can't stop the sin. I can't quit. If you read Romans 7, Paul struggled in, in the same way and he said to me, the, the will is present with me. Okay, the, the will that is damaged because of sin, it, I, I have the, the willpower 
But in the presence of sin, how to perform what is good, I do not find. There are numerous biblical principles that I could share with you. In fact, I'll do that just now. It's not in your notes. You can use the back of your notes if you want to capture these things. Let me, let me give us uh, five, six, five quick things, quick, quick ideas to help you in your battle with, with sin. Number one, scripture in our hearts. Scripture in our hearts. David said in Psalm 119 verse nine, how shall I cleanse my way? By taking heed to your word. He said, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Second Timothy three, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed that God would sanctify his people by the, the truth. God's word is truth. And so scripture in our hearts, number two, cleansing of our minds. Cleansing of our minds. Romans 12, two says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Ephesians 4 teaches us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. 2 Corinthians 10 calls us to cast down every imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We are to bring into captivity every thought of our minds to the obedience of Christ. A quick illustration I remember in high school and in college, my soccer coaches would, would always teach us that whoever controls the center of the field wins the games. The battle for the game did not occur so much on offense or on defense, but in the middle of the field at center field. Who would be first to the ball to win possession of the ball at center field? Because that would determine whether we're playing offense or defense. And in the very same way, our minds are center field in our lives. And we must win the battle in the strength of the Holy Spirit in our minds and in our hearts. The cleansing of our minds. Scripture in our hearts. Cleansing in our minds. Number three, reclothing of our man. Reclothing of our man. Ephesians 4, put off the old manner of life, the old man, which is corrupt because of lust. Put on the new manner of life, the new man in righteousness and holiness. Reclothing of a man, number four, armed, armor for battle, armed for battle. Ephesians six, the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And why do we need that? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we need the armor of God. Number five, dependent upon the spirit. We cannot win this war in the flesh. Romans six through eight. Galatians five verse 16, walk in the spirit. First John four, four, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The spirit of God, we must be dependent upon the spirit. And, and these are just some, some quick helps. As sin damages our will, it coerces our decisions and we feel powerless in our fight against sin. But folks, practically, the one who is trying to stop smoking doesn't carry a pack in his pocket. The dieter doesn't keep sweets in the fridge. The alcoholic doesn't go social drinking and the Christian makes no provision for the flesh, you see. And maybe you need to cancel cable or throw away your TV or change your friends and associates. Maybe you need to make yourself accountable to a fellow believer. Maybe you need to gouge out your eye because know that the will is damaged by sin. It damages our will. It coerces our decisions to the point that we can't seem to say no. And in our own strength, we cannot fight temptation. 
so was the case with Adam and Eve. Look at verses seven and eight. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. A new self-awareness occurred and they, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, cool of the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Folks, number five, sin destroys our fellowship. It destroys our fellowship and it causes shame because of sin. They disobeyed God's command. They ate of the tree in the midst of the garden. Now because of their sin, Adam and Eve realized they're naked and they were ashamed of that. They had to cover themselves and then when God came into the garden, they hid themselves from him. Let me create a scenario for you in your mind's eye. Imagine that you're a teenager. You come home from school to find that your mom has been in your, your bedroom. She's made your bed. She's vacuumed the floor. She's put uh, the laundry away. And you get angry. And you snap, Mom, what were you doing in, in my room? And she says, well, I made your bed. I vacuumed your floor. I put your laundry away. You push her out the room, you shut the door. Later that evening, your dad walks in. And you say, I didn't ask for you to come in. I didn't tell you you could come in. What are you doing in my room? What do you want? Sorry, right? What's going on there? There's some point of relationship that is strained or broken. Why? Because there may be something in the life of that youth or in the room of that youth that needs to be hidden or covered. What's going on there is fellowship is destroyed. What makes a son or a daughter or a spouse or a friend or, or anyone shrink away, hide themselves, cover themselves, and resent your presence because something is hidden? And you mark my words, fellowship is broken in the presence of sin. What would you have to hide if the Lord were to invite himself into your home or your bedroom or your office or your car or your private safe space. For Adam and Eve, because of sin, there was shame and fellowship that was destroyed. They were ashamed and the fellowship was destroyed. Number six, sin demands a payment. Sin demands a payment. It carries consequences. And I would point you now to verse number 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The the serpent, of course, is cursed here to crawl on his belly. Uh, In verse number 15, we won't read it just this morning. It's the first reference to the Messiah. It's it's the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. We're gonna look at that next week. But verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. There's there's pain in childbirth and there's, there's conflict and a power struggle that occurs there between a married couple, verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, 
Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken to dust you are. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. And so creation is cursed. Thorns and thistles and weeds. And, and Adam is, is cursed, attached to the, to the ground, the consequence of his labor. And I've water skied quickly over these, these verses because they are trivial in comparison to the consequence of sin to our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so having a baby is painful and work is painful. There are weeds and thorns and thistles and the snake has to crawl on his belly. Those are some short-term material consequences of the fall of sin. But ultimately, the greatest consequence of our sin fell to Jesus Christ. And I began this morning by citing Romans 5, verse number 12, whereas by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned, okay? But the counterpart for that remedy to sin or the counterpart remedy for sin is, is then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I would offer you this, therefore by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to, the condemn, to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Folks, what we read of in Genesis 3 is not just a historic account of the first man and woman. But it is the ground for the gospel. Because of the fall of man, because of sin, Jesus Christ had to go to a cross, shed his blood as the only perfect, sufficient sacrifice for our sins. The Lamb of God had to die for this sin and for our sin. This morning I submit to you not Adam and Eve in some program to reform humanity. I offer you Jesus Christ. The one free gift of salvation came through Jesus Christ for the justification of life. Your biblical worldview, your Christian worldview, your theological understanding of all that is Christianity starts right here. And it concludes with Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, we'll study next week, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, where the seed of woman is prophesied that Jesus Christ would come and redeem us from our, our sin. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this hard subject. Or the subject of sin is, it's not comfortable, it's not enjoyable. Lord, we would just as soon have a, a message of health and wealth and prosperity, of something that would make us to feel good. But Lord, we know that we are sinners by birth and by behavior. We know that we are in need of a savior. God, I pray that you would help us to have victory over sin and the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk in obedience to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.